see you. Good, good. You guys will take your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 1. We um, are going to take a little break from Genesis, which we are going to finish one of these days. But uh, we're taking a little break for Christmas, and so I get one Christmas sermon, Santo gets one Christmas sermon, and then uh, we'll be back on schedule uh, with our look at Genesis. So we're going to look at verses 18 uh, down to 25, and so we're looking at Matthew's uh, account of the birth of Jesus Christ. So when you get there, why don't you stand up for the reading of God's holy word. And we will read it together. So let me read this for us, okay? Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill What the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Well, as we begin this morning, um, I want to use a a military illustration. Uh, I don't use them often, but there's something that's always attracted me to military life. For a long period of time, I was interested in joining the military until I got sick and was unable to in high school. Um, But one of the things that I really enjoy about military or watching movies about military is uh, the the brotherhood of uh, the military. And one of the things that I or one of the movies that I like the most where I see this is uh, Saving Private Ryan. And um, it's a movie a little bit older now, uh, but it's a great movie uh, starring Tom Hanks. And the movie is uh, following World War II. And uh, the opening scene is all about D-Day and the, the um, invasion of Normandy there. And there is this private named Ryan, and uh, his last name is Ryan. And he has older brothers. Now, all his older brothers die uh, in the war early on. And the mom is supposed to get all three death notices at one time. And out of mercy, the general in charge says, you know what, we're going to bring this last brother home for this grieving mother. And he says, look, he's done a great service to the country, but we need to bring him home. And so there is a rescue mission with Tom Hanks and his little crew, band of soldiers, and they go throughout enemy territory trying to find this one 
person. Now this person, Private Ryan, is way behind enemy lines. It's a very dangerous mission. And Tom Hanks will lose a lot of his men, even his own life, in trying to save Private Ryan. But he sees it as no man left behind and a, a mission given to him from up top. And so that's what he used to do. And he does it with everything that he's got. But what I want us to think about there in this scenario for a moment is what would it feel like if you were Private Ryan, trapped behind enemy lines? What would it feel like if you were in this awful hellhole of a, of a war and you have experienced the worst of humanity and you're trapped needing to be saved and rescued? What would it mean when you saw the rescue team coming? them coming to actually be with you and get you out of this battle? What would it mean that they left the comforts of base to come and to be with you in the battlefield? This is what I've been thinking about a lot as I've been meditating on this passage. What it meant for Jesus to become Emmanuel, God with us. Because in a very similar way, Jesus left the safety of his heavenly home to come into a dangerous rescue mission for you and for me to be with us. And so we're going to see this morning that really according to God's perfect and eternal plan, Joseph's baby boy is God with us in order to save us. And I want to say from the outset, these are two truths that we know very well. Even if we've only been a Christian for a short period of time or if we've grown up in the church all our lives, God with us to save us. And so I want us to be able to hear this afresh and anew as we look at both Jesus as our Savior and Jesus as God with us. So let's start with Jesus as our Savior. See, most of us are probably more familiar with Luke's account of the birth narrative, right? So Luke's account uh, is the one that uh, is read in Charlie Brown, you know, Christmas uh, movie, right? Uh, the King James Version, obviously. And um, you got to put that in there. I remember every Christmas morning, my dad, our tradition was to read uh, the Christmas story from Luke, King James Version again. And uh, just because it sounds a whole lot better, you know, uh, in that one particular scenario. And, um, but Luke's gospel here closely details the birth narrative. It's where um, the, the angels come to the shepherds, the shepherds witness um, the glory of God, singing glory to God in the highest, and they go and see the, the newborn king. But Matthew, on the other hand, he focuses less on the details of the birth and more on the meaning of his birth. Why is it significant? Who is this Jesus? And what did he come to do for you and for me? So God, Matthew's gospel follows the birth of Christ really from the perspective of the father, from Joseph, right? We just read that. It's not from Mary's perspective. Luke kind of goes more that route. But Matthew goes towards the route of seeing this from Joseph's point of view. And Joseph and Mary were pledged to be married, well on their way to be married. Remember, uh, engagement and marriage were a little bit different back then. And so when it says pledged to be married, it's not quite engagement. It's more officially marriage, but they weren't allowed to consummate the marriage yet um, in their tradition and in their culture. But there was a problem that arose. We see here in verse 18, 
when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. All right, so this would be a very disgraceful thing, right? This means that she would have had sex outside of marriage, and this would have been something that's worthy of divorce. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, knew that the child wasn't his. But Joseph feared God in a good way. He was a righteous and a kind man, as the Bible says. So Joseph comes up with a solution. Verse 19, he says, being a righteous man, he's not wanting to disgrace her. He desires to put her away secretly or quietly. And so he's going to get a secret divorce, a quiet divorce, so that she is not shamed publicly. In the law, she could have been even stoned publicly for such an offense. But he knew that he had to honor God, which was his first concern. He also knew that he had to honor the sanctity of marriage. See, when it says he's a righteous man, a just man, he wants to do what is right according to God and his view. And yet he was also kind. He didn't do what he could have done with Mary. He said he loved Mary in this way, and therefore he wasn't going to put her through a very public divorce. But let's think about what this means for you and for me when we look at the life of Joseph here in his decision. Listen to this quote carefully. The character of Joseph, the man God chose for his son to have an earthly father, is not only interesting, it's also instructive to us. There are many who are righteous, but who are not kind. There are many who are kind, but not righteous. Joseph, however, loved God in his law, and that love of God touched his heart, causing him to be a kind man. When God chose a human father for his son, he chose a man that would be righteous and kind, qualities that reflect God the Father himself. Think about that. When God chose a human man to be the father of Jesus, he reflected the Father, our Heavenly Father. And in a similar way for us, as we grasp the love of God for us, we can act in similar righteousness and kindness in our lives, especially when it matters the most, just like a big decision like this of would he divorce her or would he not? But as we continue in the story, the divorce actually doesn't happen. It doesn't go through as most of us know. God intervenes in a dream, speaking through an angel about what he is to do with this problem. He was thinking on it, mulling over it, probably praying to God, saying, what should I do? And an angel appears to him and says, look, this is not an illegitimate child. This is not you know, a child outside of the, of, of the wedlock of marriage, but this is a child from the Holy Spirit, a miracle child. It's something that we can't understand with our human minds. Right? How, how does someone have a baby through the Holy Spirit? It's just something that you have to take by faith, right? Unbelievers may look at it and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. And to an unbelieving mind, of course it's absolutely ridiculous. But for us, we say, well, I don't know. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He did it that way. But nevertheless, this child, a miracle child, was sent to be on a rescue mission for people like you and for me. Let's look at that closely here in verse 21. The text says she will bear a son, 
and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So usually, the, the um, privilege of naming the child goes to the parent. But in this case, God himself, through the angel, gives the name Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Or in your Bibles, a lot of times you'll see the Lord, all capital, right? That's what Yahweh is, God's revealed name for himself. It was also a common name in the form of Joshua throughout the Old Testament, but now takes on special meaning. Not only as a reminder to God's people that the Lord is their Savior in a general way, right? He saved them from a battle, saved them from an enemy, whatever it may be. But he is the Savior in a specific way by sending his one and only Son to save his people. And so in a very specific way, you know, we know that all throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I am going to send someone to save. I'm going to send this person called the Messiah, called the Christ. And Matthew points this out all throughout chapter 1. He says, this person that we've been waiting for, talking about the Jews for all that time, he's here. He is here in this person, in this baby, Jesus. And Matthew doesn't leave us guessing on why he was named Jesus. He flat out tells us here in the text. It's because he will save his people from their sins. From that little statement here, I want us to see three things. The first one is this, that he, meaning Jesus, will do the saving. He will do the saving. One of the things Matthew wants to show us in his gospel is that this carpenter's son is the one that is going to save people from their sin. That's what is wrapped up in that title of Messiah, of when it says, the Bible says, the Christ. That's what they've been waiting for this whole time. He came on a rescue mission to save rebellious, screwed up, messed up people just like you and me, who have decided to go our own way. And we justly deserve God's wrath and his punishment forever. And yet we don't get that because of what Jesus has done for us. Secondly, they are his people. Notice that this is a rescue mission, not like the one I spoke about earlier in Saving Private Ryan. You know the funny thing about that group of soldiers who was going to save Private Ryan? They didn't know anything about Ryan. It wasn't personal for them. They didn't know anything about him. However, Jesus knows his people. He knows his sheep, right? They are his people. And for him, it's personal. Think about that for a minute. For Jesus, saving his people is personal. He had us in mind. Thirdly, they will be saved from what? From their sins. Notice they didn't say his sins, right? He was sinless. It's their sins. It's our sins, your sin and my sin. That's our biggest problem, right? We always need to be reminded that our biggest problem is not a lack of education. Our biggest problem is not a lack of money or a lack of adequate health care or a, a lack of the right uh, po political leaders or global warming or whatever you, problem you want to put in there. As big as those problems all may be and as God might care about those problems as much as he does, that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we have chosen to rebel against God. 
and we need someone to save us. It begs the question, have we acknowledged that in our own lives yet? The greatness of Jesus Christ coming to earth is that He is the Savior of His people for their sins. He is our Savior for our sins. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That that baby boy born and put in that manger is the Savior of the world. He's no ordinary baby. But as we move on to verses 22 and 23, we begin to see a more intimate picture of Jesus, not just as Savior and Deliverer, but as the God who is with us. Look again at verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So remember I said earlier, one thing that Matthew really wants us to see is a clear connection between Jesus and the promises God made long, long ago. He does this in the very opening of his gospel with a genealogy. Last Christmas I preached on that and how the genealogy was carefully crafted to show that he is the person that they have been waiting for all this time. And then he goes straight into this birth narrative and he says that what has taken place has gone on to fulfill what God said a long time ago in a prophet named Isaiah. He's making good on a promise that he made a long time ago. Now this prophecy comes from Isaiah 7.14. And it says that the, the fulfillment of the promise here came in part in Old Testament times, but now in Christ in the fullest sense. And so a lot of times prophecies have kind of multiple fulfillments, meaning that when, when God spoke it through Isaiah the prophet, it meant something for the people of God in that time. And it came to pass in a small way in that time. But it was also pointing forward to Jesus where it would come true in the fullest sense. And so now in Jesus we see it come to fulfillment. And this is where the second name comes into play. Emmanuel, which means God with us. This name speaks to not only what Jesus does, but it also speaks to who he is. And so what he does, we talked about earlier, coming to save us from our sin. But who he is, is Emmanuel, God with us. He came to live with us in a very tangible, touchable, feelable way. And I think this is a big difference. Now, my illustration here is for the kids. All right, so I want you guys to think about this. Or uh, adults, we can think about this as well because we were there at one point. Most of us, at one point or another, had a stuffed animal or a blanket or something that we wanted that kind of, when we were scared, we went to. Right? For me, it was a panda bear. Okay? I have this panda bear. My son now has it. Um, and, uh, and when I was scared, I wanted that panda bear. Right? But think about If you were scared out of your mind for something, for some reason, and that blanket, panda, whatever it may be, was downstairs, how much good would it be? And you were upstairs in your room. Not a whole lot of good. Right? You can't hold it. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. 
It's not that good in that moment. But it makes all the difference in the world if in that moment that you are scared, you are actually holding that blanket, that bear, whatever it may be. See, there's a big difference between it being in and around the area and it actually being in your arms and with you. I think the same thing is true here with God. God has always been omnipresent. He has always been everywhere. So in one sense, he's always been with us and around us and working in the world. But he chose to leave those comforts of heaven and to come and actually live among us as a human being. I think that's the big difference there. God has come to move into the neighborhood, as John 1 puts it, as we had in our beginning of our service. He came to dwell among us. He pitched his tent next to us. We've been studying in the book of Genesis, God with us. And we've seen how, in, particularly in Jacob's life, how time and time again, this little deceiver and conniver has experienced God with him. A grace that he didn't deserve, and yet God continued to pour out this grace time and time and time again. But it was a big theme that God is with Jacob and God is with his people. But throughout time, we've seen kind of a change or a development of this theme of God with his people in Scripture. And when I was studying this week, I came across a helpful quote that helps us to understand how God's presence with his people has kind of changed throughout redemptive history. Now, bear with me, but I, I want to read this quote for you guys. There are four stages biblically. Number one, God is present via his Shekinah or dwelling via the pillar of fire and cloud in the Exodus and his throne at the midpoint where the wings of the seraphim meet above the ark in the most holy place throughout the Old Testament. Number two, so the next stage, God is present via his son who is, was a, in a sense, walking most holy place during his life. Number three, again moving forward, God is present via the Holy Spirit during the church age, which we are in now, right? And number four, God will be present physically and in full reality throughout all eternity. I think that's really helpful for us to understand how the Bible develops this theme of God with us. Right? Throughout the Old Testament, God was with his people in a specific area, the temple or the tabernacle. It was a very special place because in a sense, God was there in a sense that he wasn't other places. But then, here in our text, we're talking about number two. God sent his son to live in and with us as a human being. So this is what we celebrate at Christmas. And of course, now we are in the church age where Jesus dwells in us. He is with us through the Holy Spirit. And so if we are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, which means God is with us in a very unique way, a great privilege that we have as Christians. But I want us to think about what that really means, that Jesus left his heavenly home to be with you and me, particularly to save us from our sins. One of the problems with, uh, with us, with humanity, is that we become familiar with things. And the more we become familiar with things, the more that we hear them, the less it means to us. That's what's behind the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Okay? 
And this is one of those truths. God came to save you from your sin, right? I mean, my kids can repeat that over and over again. They've heard it. I've heard it from a, being a young child their age all the way up to now. God saved me from my sin. God saved me from my sin. But what does it actually mean to us? Think for a moment about a rescue story that you've heard before. Any kind of rescue story. It can be anything. What did it mean personally for the one being saved that the rescuer came personally? Think about that. What does it mean for the person being saved that the rescuer came personally for them? It makes me think about another movie, uh, The Perfect Storm. The Perfect Storm is about a movie, or sorry, but it is a movie, um, about uh, a group of fishermen up in, uh, I think, Massachusetts area. And uh, they go out on this uh, fishing trip, and uh, the perfect storm comes. So it's like a hurricane and a nor'easter kind of smack together. And um, in this movie, which is a very sad movie, by the way, it does not have a happy ending, um, this, there is a, a, a storm they get caught in. And there's a couple of ships out there, one also being a sailboat. The Coast Guard gets called in to come and to rescue this sailboat. So the Coast Guard comes in when no one else would go out to save these few people on this sailboat that are going to die if the Coast Guard doesn't come. What, would, what does it mean for those people that the Coast Guard was willing to leave the base, which was safe, to jump into the waves and to be there among them and pull them out of the storm which would surely cost their lives. It meant everything in the world to them. That the Savior would come and personally be with them. They were utterly grateful for them. They would never forget that they came to be with them in the middle of that storm and left the safety of their base. See, the same is true, even better, and even more for Jesus Christ. That he came to be with us to save us. That makes all the difference in the world, that he did that personally for us. One commentator points out here that in Jesus, God is now with his people personally as their Savior. And this is really what we celebrate at Christmas time. That he personally came to save you and me. For Jesus, you are personal. I'll say it again. For Jesus, you are personal. That's what we celebrate here during the Advent season. Remember, the, the term Advent means coming. We typically celebrate it the four weeks before Christmas. Sometimes maybe you've done like an Advent um, uh, candles and you light the candle meaning hope, faith, love, that kind of thing. But Christians try to put themselves in the shoes of those that were waiting on the coming of Christ. Like the Old Testament people of God. One of my favorite Christmas hymns that explores this topic is one we sang at first in the service, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This song is full of longing full of waiting, full of expectation of this one called Emmanuel that will come to be with us and save us from our sin. I want to close by reading for us again the first verse of this song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. And then the refrain, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. These words are dripping with expectation for the first coming of Jesus. But for us, we have a unique opportunity in that we look back on his first coming. We're not those that were looking forward to when he would come, as the song kind of puts us in those shoes, but we are now looking back. Jesus has already come the first time. But now we sing it as those waiting for not his first coming, but for his what? For his second coming. And so Advent kind of takes on a special meaning for us as Christians in that we're not waiting for him to come and save us from our sins. We're, we're waiting for him to come and to take us home. We're waiting for him to come and to make all things right, which he will surely do. His second coming will come one day. We don't know when. We don't know how. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But it will come. And he will gather all his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it will be beautiful living with God forevermore. And God with us will take on a yet again a new meaning. Like we talked about earlier. Being with his people physically present forever. Jesus Christ. Without the presence of sin. And yet there is a warning for those of us here that have yet to trust in Christ. Because that second coming will not only be a joyous day for Christians, but it will be a very unhappy day for the rest of the world. Because it will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of accounting. A day of reckoning. And so I think in this is a warning for us, if we are not there yet, if we have not put our faith in Christ, that this is coming. That while we have today, we need to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who is the only Savior of our sin. And so I want to encourage us wherever we are, whether we are believers or you would identify as I'm not yet a Christian, that we would put our faith, our joy, our hope, our expectation in Christ and Christ alone in this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us. God, we don't deserve your attention at all. And yet, Lord, you have chosen to not only speak to us in your word, you chose to send your one and only son to, to come and to be born as a baby, to come and to live among us. To come and to save us. God, I don't know how to ask for forgiveness for the ways that I have heard that phrase, that we have heard that phrase, Jesus saves us or he's a savior of our sin. How many times we've heard that and it just goes right over our head. God, forgive us of our familiarity with that phrase. God, we pray that this season afresh and anew that you would please help us to understand, to really get it, that you are our Savior and that you are the God that is with us. We need your help. We can't do this on our own. Lord, we have too many distractions, too many things that are trying to take us 
away from thinking about that and meditating on, on that throughout Christmas. And yet we pray that you would please fix our eyes on you in this particular way. God, I pray for each and every one here. Lord, that they would meet with you deeply throughout this Christmas season as they meditate on these truths. And Lord, I pray that you would bring great encouragement for our souls. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.